Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you doing? I am so good, Radio Free Mormon. Life treating you well? Oh, better than I deserve, my friend. You look like you're fresh from the barber shop. Yeah, this is a, it's a haircut. I'm not sure if it's a good one or a bad one, but it is a haircut nonetheless. How I hope was you didn't the, leave a tip. How's, uh, how's that Huntsman trial doing? Oh, great. Wonderful <laughs> news. I expect James Huntsman's attorneys are just waking up about this time after an all-night bender and celebration of that ruling that we covered last night at Mormonism, uh, excuse me, Mormon Stories. Yeah, they uh, they probably had a lot of fun celebrating after all of that, huh? Oh, yeah, I did. I got like an hour's sleep last night. Yeah, But I'm here. So, uh, do you think that thing has some merit? Do you think, we were talking about this earlier, do you think this has legs under it? The ruling says it all. Yeah. So it doesn't make any difference what I think. Two out of three judges say yes, and so it goes forward. And on to the next stage we go. Yes. Awesome. Well, do you want to tell us anything uh, wonderful, exciting in your life? Any announcements that you have to make before we introduce the subject of tonight's show? Just got uh, back, you know, I was here last week, of course, but got back from the Grand Canyon. and such a beautiful thing, and just trying to get back into the swing of things, and uh, life is good. No, we can... Uh, Maybe I'll put some things in the in the comments in terms of things we'd love the listeners to click and visit and know where our donation page is, but nothing pressing. Okay, so well, fantastic. On. Now, as most of you probably know, Dan Vogel, a preeminent historian on things, all things Joseph Smith, and most things Mormonism, wrote a book recently, came out a couple of months ago. He was doing the circuit, part of the circuit included our show where he came on to talk about his new book, Charisma Under Pressure, which deals with Joseph Smith from the years 1831 to 1839. He's already written a previous volume about Joseph Smith before 1831, and he'll be writing, and probably is working on it right now, another book during the Nauvoo period about Joseph Smith. So it's an amazing thing. It's been very well received. There are a lot of people said some really nice things about it on the back cover, including oh, oh, it won the Best Biography Award from the Mormon History Association. So that sounds pretty good. There's a nice blurb from Publishers Weekly, from BYU Studies, from the Journal of Mormon History. Everybody seems to really, really like this book, except for one person. And by the way, I have to announce the title of tonight's show, because this book, in spite of all of its acclaim upon its reception, received from one LDS scholar a two-star book review on Amazon. And that LDS scholar who gave this book a two-star book review is none other than our very own Brian Hales. And that's why the title of tonight's show is Brian Hales and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Book Review. So yes. we're gonna go we're gonna go ahead and bring on Brian Hales. Ready? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Get him on here. <laughs> we have had this announced. By the way, today is uh, August 9th, 2023. Yesterday was August 8th. Remember, that's in 1844 when Brigham Young turned into Joseph Smith, and everybody said, this is the guy. 
we can see the hand of God upon him because he's looking like and he's talking like Joseph Smith. So he must be the one who's appointed to lead the saints and we'll follow him anywhere. We'll follow him out to the middle of nowhere. In fact, in Utah. And Maven is joining us from yeah. <laughs> uh, the what? The the east, the far east. Still there. Yeah. And I totally forgot what I was going to say now. And now I'm really hmm. sad about it. Oh, no, <laughs> That's okay. I you just take your time and think about it. <laughs> we'll wait. Yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to point out that um, those in the Joseph Smith polygamy denier camp, uh, although Mike from LDS discussions is normally a very evil anti-Mormon, just, you know, tearing down Joseph Smith. They like that episode. They like the transfiguration debunk. So, um, you know, just like they like your uh, RFM, your apostolic coup d'etat episodes that they're on board with those. So just pointing that out. What I want to know is I want some philosopher to grapple with the question that if Brigham Young turned into Joseph Smith on August 8th, 1844, does that mean in some way that Joseph Smith was responsible for assassinating himself? Your answer to that, Mr. Real? You, either you're thinking hard or something else is going on with your GI tract. I'm not sure which. I think my I'm going deaf in my old age. I'm sorry. I can't hear no, you, Mr. I'm Real. Sorry. What was it? So, ah, oh, there we go. I, yeah, here's my question, which is, um, do you think in 50 years that story will be in the church curriculum anymore? Yes. You think it will? Because there are witnesses who say that they saw it happen, even though they're all late, and nobody who was present at the time who made a contemporaneous record of the event mentions anything about anything supernatural happening. So the earliest people weren't even there. The earliest One of them. Records. I think it was Orson Hyde. He of and the creative imagination. I think John D. Lee as well. Perhaps, yeah. And he also wasn't in town that day. There is at least one, possibly two people who left affidavits and testimonies about uh, this miraculous event yeah. that the historical record upon further examination has disclosed were not even in Nauvoo no. on August 8th, 1844, no. when the darn thing was supposed to have happened. So there's that. Yes. So, let it, I think we've probably talked enough. Can we bring on Dan Vogel? Because what we're going to do is we're going to use... There's Dan. Hello, Dan. How are you tonight? I'm losing my hearing again. <laughs> yeah, talk right into the microphone so we can all hear you. Oh, let's try. Yeah, let's try that. It's, I'll take the blame on that one. Okay. Go ahead, Dan. I was just about to fix it. Are you punching Dan this Vogel? This is what there? happens... When Were you three doing that? guys with the youngest being 44 is trying to trying to do a podcast. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Well, thank, welcome to tonight's show, the Dan. Youngest. Yeah, I wish I were the youngest. <laughs> so I'm doing great. It, it feels great, great, believe me, to be the youngest. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's, what we're going to be doing it. tonight, so everyone knows, is we're going to be reading through very quickly... Brian Hill's book review, and then we're going to use it as a springboard for Dan to respond to it because Brian Hales doesn't just write a book review. What he does is he wants to bring up his latest cause, Celeb. It used to be polygamy for a while. Then he started digging, sticking his nose into the book of Abraham and mucking that subject up. And his latest infatuation has to do with the Book of Mormon and coming up with a brand new novel an entirely convincing argument for its authenticity, which he can't help but stick into his review. Now, this review is not that long, but he's got to go there because Brian Hales has now become like 
the old uncle at the family reunion that nobody wants to hang out with because no matter what the subject of conversation is, he's going to turn it around and start talking about the same old thing that you've heard a hundred times before. And this is what Brian's doing. He's going everywhere. He's stopping strangers on the street to tell them about his new defense for the Book of Mormon. So that's what we're going to spend the balance of the night doing. And I thought this would be a wonderful way to frame the discussion Give Dan a chance to respond publicly and gentlemanly, I'm sure. He is a scholar and a gentleman. And see if we can make heads or tails out of this defense that Brian Hales has come up with and whether it's something that really is convincing and persuasive. So, do we have do we have the, uh, the review? And I'm going to read this at a very quick clip because we'll be coming back to it as we go through. All right, so here's Brian Hales' book review. Two stars. Part. <laughs> Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad book review, which he published at Amazon, it looks like on July 12th, 2023, just a little under a month ago. Here is Brian Hales on Dan Vogel and his new book, Charisma Under Pressure. The theory promoted throughout Charisma Under Pressure, describing Joseph Smith as a pious fraud, fails to accommodate the historical Joseph Smith in two important ways. First, it fails to account for Smith's creation of the Book of Mormon. Now, once again, Charisma Under Pressure, Joseph Smith, 1831 to 1839. Okay. Hey, RFM, what, what year was the Book of Mormon published? Uh, 1830. Okay, just checking. So, in other words, it occurs outside the time span that this book purports <laughs> and actually does cover. So, what Brian's going to be doing, he's going to be busting Dan's chops and getting up all up in his grill over not talking about something that is specifically not to be covered. In this book, it, it, it was the first book, up, right? So here we, we go. Even, hey, RFM, do we even yeah. know if, if Moroni even shows up to visit Joseph after 1830? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> uh, not to All my right. knowledge. All right, enough of me. Continue on. But you see, he has to do this. He has to wedge and shoehorn this Book of Mormon defense of his into the conversation somehow, even though it doesn't belong there. First, he goes on, first it fails to account for Smith's, excuse me, first it being Charisma Under Pressure Dan's book. First, it fails to account for Smith's creation of the Book of Mormon. Charisma does not bestow the composition and oratory skills needed to create a 269,320 word book. With 207 name characters, 77 storylines, 149 geographic locations, 45 socio-geographic groups, 63 sermons comprising over 87,000 words, 100 distinct titles for God, and over, and over 170 new English proper nouns. And importantly, not a single full sentence of his original dictation has been edited since the word stream was spoken, written, and immediately delivered to the printer. Well, we'll come back to that sentence, definitely, as well as others. Because <laughs> that is the, the strangest sentence I've ever read. And when you have such an Unusual sentence, you know he's covering something up. In his writings, Dan Vogel describes Joseph Smith as a pious fraud. But frauds don't produce books like the Book of Mormon because it is written. That's the unwritten order of things, Dan. Frauds don't produce books like the Book of Mormon. They don't? <laughs> uh, until they do, I guess. Only actual authors with literary skills can do that. This fact is ignored throughout Vogel's works. Okay, so now he's saying plural, your works, okay? 
This fact is ignored throughout Vogel's works, including Charisma Under Pressure, where it wouldn't have been anyway. Assuming Smith had the skills also ignores dozens of eyewitness accounts declaring he didn't. An issue Charisma, the book, fails to address, let alone resolve. Sounds like you're a lazy learner there, Dan. Do we have a second page on this? Yeah. All right. This is the balance of his book review. Brian Hales continues, the second glaring problem involves how Vogel portrays the people around Joseph Smith as gullible dupes who couldn't detect what Vogel easily can see nearly 200 years later. This could be a classic case of projection by Brian Hales. I'm not sure. Charisma empowered Smith to deceive all those Mormons. While some of Smith's followers might have been that naive, the vast majority were skeptical and devout Christians. The historical record supports that women like Eliza Snow and Zina Huntington and men like John Taylor and Brigham Young would not have been fooled by a charismatic male as easily as Vogel portrays. Uh, by the way, Dan, as, a, as an amateur magician, and I know you're one too, I take a special delight when people say dogmatically that a certain person or class of people could never be fooled. Yeah, they, I guess they've never watched... Uh, uh... <laughs> what is it? Uh, the the Amazing Randy, that that thing about it, uh, uh, an honest well, liar. Two, well, that, but to the two magicians uh, don't fool me. Um, Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller, yeah, yeah. They they get fooled every now and then too. Right. These are the guys who. <laughs> this is their whole life. This is their whole study. This is their whole being. Yeah. And yes, even experts in being fool in fooling other people can be fooled themselves. And they can Good be point. fooled by psychics. Yeah, psychics. Mm, psychics. psychics. Well, we're almost done with this review. I think Fawn Brody would agree. So now he's going to trump you by quoting Fawn Brody against you, Dan. Quoting Fawn Brody, apparently, the best evidence of the magnetism of the Mormon religion was that it could attract men with a quality of Brigham Young, whose tremendous energy and shrewd intelligence were not easily directed by any influence outside himself. That's the end of the quote from Fawn Brody going on. The scenarios depicted through Charisma, the book, seem comic book-like, where Smith's followers behave differently than genuinely sincere and skeptical religionists would have behaved. Last paragraph. It appears that the version of Joseph Smith portrayed by Vogel is a caricature and inadequate. Neither is it clear Smith's followers would have been so blindly, so blinded by charisma under pressure to Smith's true motives if they were what Vogel declares them to have been. Caution is advised for anyone tempted to embrace the version of Smith and his followers portrayed in Charisma Under Pressure and Vogel's other writings. Two stars, sir. Two stars for you. Ouch. Dan, what was your first response when you read this? <laughs> and what were the circumstances? Was it pointed out um, to you by somebody else? No, I, I was just reading my reviews, which are mostly uh, positive. And then I saw this one. <laughs> So it's like a, you know, apologist hit, you know, on my book. And mm -hmm. I experienced this before on my first biography, where the apologist kind of showed up and started writing bad reviews to lower lower the uh, star ratio. And um, so I figured, oh, this is just the first probably of a barrage of them. But that hasn't happened. And and I posted it, and I thought, well, I'll I'll respond to it. I wish I could respond to it right there, but. There's no way of actually doing that, I don't think. But um, so I did on Facebook, and then I got a pretty good response from a lot of um, post Mormon, from the post Mormon community mostly. Uh, 
I don't know if they were all, I, I bet you there's some, um, you know, faithful historians uh, or scholars uh, also would probably disagree with Hale's review because um, there's a lot of things in it that they probably don't like either because Hale's review is pretty on the conservative slash fundamentalist side of Mormon apologetics. And so, so uh, the, the more progressive historians actually allow Joseph Smith to participate very heavily in the writing of the Book of Mormon. So they won't uh, probably disagree. I'm going to be quoting some of them anyway. But um, so I wrote that and I did get all those overwhelming responses. And some people went and wrote positive reviews, which I you know, greatly appreciate. I, it was really nice to see all of that, uh, the community sticking together like that. And I, I'm very appreciative. And I thank everybody if anybody's here. I know Doug, <laughs> Doug, Doug was one of them that wrote a positive review, and some others are probably here too. And so, is that Doug Vincent? Yeah, yeah, he's so. A great thank guy. you, everybody. All right, so we've got a bunch more slides to get through tonight as you begin to take Brian Hales apart piece by piece <laughs> well, before a live audience. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> number three. Okay, I, I call this uh, Brian Hales by the numbers. Hmm. Clever, clever. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to look at his numbers because, you know, some of those numbers, they don't have any context, you know? Right. They're just numbers and categories, and we're supposed to be intimidated by all of that, I guess. Uh, so um, then we'll go to the next slide, and that's his two-star review. Which right, that's what just I just read, read next to the, a picture of your, your book. Yeah. Yeah, well, you so can tell he's actually being sincere. He's, it's not a hit job because he didn't give you one star, Dan. Yeah, he could have. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that's his fig leaf to show that he's a, a real, yeah. real um, scholar and giving a real good scholarly analysis. Are you ready to go to the next page? Yep. Go. So that's me and uh, Brian Hales. Oh, is that with his, when he has the, the knife in his left hand, shoving it in your back? In my back, yeah. No, with a smile so, on his face. So, yeah, we, we see each other at meetings and things. And, you know, he's a pretty cordial guy. I'm a cordial guy. And we get along pretty good, I think. Have you seen uh, him at a meeting since he wrote his review? No. What do you expect is going to happen the next time you no. see him? Nothing. <laughs> well, so he, he has a perfect right to disagree with my publication and try out his apologetics and his point of view. He's, he's perfectly willing to express it. I. I don't require my friends to agree with me at all. So um, they can disagree with me just like me and Brent. I think, <laughs> you, know? I think you, you wasted all that time as a youth you spent learning Jeet Kune Do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the... I like the, jiu Jiu-Jitsu, you know, that is pretty yeah. good stuff. Yeah, I wish I would have learned that. Yeah, judo was kind of a wasted time, I thought. But anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, so you have pictures with him, yes, oh, here's to a, Brian? Show, yeah. So to be fair, I, I don't dismiss all of Hale's works either. And I, I don't harbor any animosity, by the way. So I, I do cite his book in my book on polygamy, especially with the Fanny Alger affair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he's worked at, tried to work it out. And I had my own, try, I tried to work out a solution of what I think happened. He doesn't quite like it, but um, 
but I ran I ran it by Don Bradley, who was his main um, source for Fanny Elger, and Don didn't see anything wrong with what I wrote. Anyway, uh, have a, I think his recent apologetic work on the Book of Mormon is far too conservative or fundamentalist, and doesn't take into account even the views of progressive LDS historians who recognized Joseph Smith's role in producing the Book of Mormon, whether it was a translation or a revelation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next slide was number six. I think you skipped one. There we are. What are you winning there? Are you getting an award? Yeah, Brian? Brian Hales is giving me this award. Thank you, Brian. Uh, and it was for it was for the eight volume uh, history of the church history of Joseph Smith and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints eight my eight volume series and he he was president so I have an award over here you know you can't see it but it has his signature on it as president of the John Whitmer Historical Association for that year I think it's twenty eighteen I'm not or twenty eighteen I think it was can't remember okay next slide. I see you dressed for the occasion. <laughs> I forgot my RFM suit. Ah, yes. Yes. Uh, Dress for success. Yeah, you got to look successful. Anyway. Um, okay, we so uh, here is the first uh, paragraph, and you see the two stars. And Joseph Smith and his followers portrayed as caricatures. So, right, and by the way, before you get we'll to talking talk about, about that, that a little bit later, yeah. this would be a great time since you pointed out the two stars of the five stars. We have a wonderful Trexmo meme yeah. made by Rebecca Biblioteca, specifically for tonight's show. And drumroll, please, it's beaming onto the bridge at present. I think we're having trouble locking on to the... I'm really sorry. <laughs> let me try to take it off and put it back on. There Let's we see go. We do. There, there it is. It's really okay, small. So so I can make it bigger. Rebecca so Biblioteca. Bigger. Rebecca Biblioteca. Here it is. Here it is. Go so ahead, we've got you. Spock talking to Kirk on the bridge. Below we have on the, uh, the screen, the view screen, we've got the two stars out of the five stars. We've got Spock saying to Captain Kirk, this star system was named after Brian Hales, Captain. This is the two-star system. Because <laughs> there's two out of five. Yeah, and I thought maybe, maybe. Let me see if I can find this. Yes, we could have had, I don't mean to one-up Rebecca, so I probably shouldn't say this, but it did occur to me that this star system, or this comet actually, was named after Brian Hale-Bopp, Captain. Yeah, the Hales-Bopp. <laughs> but it's got to be a star system because there's two out of five, so never mind. Or uh, Haley-Bopp. Yeah. What's don't the, let what's it pass you by. Applewhite, right? Mr. Applewhite in the Heaven's Gate crew. Very good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And most of them made it just in time. As yeah, the really oh, comet really? was leaving the station. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's the, the fun for tonight. Everything else is going to be dead serious. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So this is the first paragraph. Uh, the theory promoted throughout throughout. <laughs> Charisma under pressure, describing Joseph Smith as a pious fraud, fails to accommodate the historical Joseph Smith in two important ways. Okay, so first, the date is the 12th of July, 2023, right? Yes. On there? And uh, so um, I received an email 
on um, 27th of July, a few weeks after that, after he wrote his review. And I, I hadn't seen it, actually, because I wasn't looking. And then I discovered it just around the 27th of July. So on the 30th of July, when I posted my Facebook post responding to Hales, on the 30th of July, I received an email from someone who asked Brian if he had read my book before posting his review. Yes. And his answer was, I'm still reading it. <laughs> actually, I'm still reading it? Yeah, yeah. He says, actually, listening to it while I go out running in the morning. Okay. Okay. So, so it's an audio book. into consideration. Actually, he's, yeah. he's wealthy enough to have Don Bradley pedaling along beside him and reading out loud. <laughs> I think that's happened once or twice. <laughs> so he hasn't even read your book, nor has he listened to it well, completely. He doesn't need to. He knows the pious fraud thesis, and that just makes him, you know, want to puke, probably. Yeah, but, it makes um, him itchy. <laughs> uh, so, uh, although my, the pious fraud thesis, actually, I'll bring this up later again, but is the most charitable view. Uh, a non-believer could have towards Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Right. This is my version. Uh, Bill will appreciate this. Uh, this is my version of still manning <laughs> Joseph Smith. You know, okay. it makes sure I give him the best possible outcome, you know, even, even though it it's very troubling anyway. I've got a feeling um, that when you see pious fraud, you're, you're seeing the word pious and he's seeing the word fraud. I, well, so I get hit on book from traffic coming both ways. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's like, uh, what do you mean Joseph is pious? And the other side says, what do you mean he's a fraud? <laughs> <laughs> and hence the two-star review. <laughs> Easy to make so, enemies. It's a very subtle, nuanced position that I think yeah. Brian should become more acquainted with and, and uh, have more uh, of a balanced approach to it hmm. so because it seems like the only view he wants you to take is that well joseph smith couldn't have written the book of mormon so it all has to be true and the whole world's going to be converted or and if yeah. you're not converted there's something wrong with you <laughs> so you know well, you're i was being converted honest you're being dishonest you know you you can't see the miracle you're just denying it you know whatever i think all three of us were converted at one point so there's nothing wrong with us yeah that well, mm. yeah. At what point did I become biased? <laughs> when yeah. when I was in, at what point did my you know? It's the evidence that led me to this position. So, at what point did I become biased? <laughs> you know, because I was a believer. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you can't. You weren't, you weren't biased then. You became well, biased you, later. Yeah, they have like a circular definition. How do you know I'm biased? Well, you, you don't believe it. <laughs> right, right, because so it's, it's so obvious. And do you want to say anything more about pious fraud? Because I, I'm really anxious oh. to get into the the number game or Brian oh, Hales by yes, the numbers. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. it's so it's so obvious that Joseph Smith could not have written this book because numbers. To some people, yeah, yeah. So, um, no, we'll we'll move on. Everybody's probably familiar with pious fraud. Um, so. Uh, Let's see. Uh, so that the uh, I think uh, where it sit, where he said that uh, 
it was um, there were caricatures on that last paragraph. I think the opposite's true. Hale's portrayal of Joseph Smith is too dumb to dictate something like the Book of Mormon, and Joseph Smith's followers are too smart to be fooled. Those are caricatures. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well put. So, uh, actually, the theory promoted throughout, when he says throughout, throughout the book is sociologist Max Weber's analysis of various kinds of authority, especially charisma, and the inevitable institutionalization of charisma in order to balance it and keep it together. Does Hale discuss this in his review? No, he doesn't discuss this. That's one of the major uh, theses that I cover in the book. Mm -hmm. So, and his review didn't do that. And a word on methodology. Okay, a word on methodology. I do discuss pious fraud in the introduction within a much larger nuanced discussion that Hales evidently didn't understand or appreciate. My approach assumes that the Book of Mormon isn't, isn't historical. So I'm assuming that it's not historical, which is a legitimate conclusion a scholar can make, because that can be tested. The result of this conclusion necessarily means there were no plates or Nephite or a Nephite angel. Pious fraud is the most charitable view, like I was saying before, one can take of Joseph Smith's motives, yet Hales is intolerant of even this. In my introduction, I clearly state that scholarship can't decide if the Book of Mormon is inspired or not, or whether Joseph Smith's a prophet or not. That, that, is, uh, that is a conclusion religious people make based on faith. On the other hand, Hale's approach to the Book of Mormon is to bracket the question of historicity. Okay. And instead, he endeavors to prove that it is a miracle beyond not only Joseph Smith's ability, but anyone's, which is purely a subjective judgment, although he uses numbers to create the appearance of objective scholarship. Mm -hmm. But the point here is that Hales and I are doing completely different things. And that Hales is attempting to prove a miracle and force us to believe it, which is what proselytizing apologists do. Right. Okay. Historians tend to bracket miracles because history can't prove or disprove miracles, right? Right. But we can test the Book of Mormon's historicity. I mean, that is within the realm of scholarship. Right, but it struck we me that what you said about Brian Hales is that he's doing the opposite. Instead of being, as a historian would do, bracketing miracles, what he does is he brackets history in order to prove yeah. a miracle. So he, he wants to take off the table the very thing that led us to our conclusion. <laughs> you know, so, so he can make it look like an, a miracle. Well, if we can show that the Book of Mormon's not history... Uh, it could still be, you know, you might want to consider a revelation or something, but it's still, you have to include Joseph Smith in the process somehow. Mm -hmm. And like Bill likes to say a lot is you can't, a, a pious fraud and a plain old fraud are indistinguishable. That's why I'm being charitable. Yeah, they're still frauds. Exactly. <laughs> So, so you if you want to have faith and believe the Book of Mormon is uh, inspired and just Mr. Prophet, fine. 
I don't have anything to say about that. I can't say anything about that. That's not scholarship. Scholarship has nothing to do with that. But I can say the Book of Mormon is not history, and that's why I don't believe it. You know, but he's trying to force us into a miracle, which we can't do. <laughs> you know, so we're, he uses our hands of, are tied. He uses a lot of numbers. He's gone from being an anesthesiologist to an accountant. <laughs> he's a bean counter. Well, he's this you is know, the bean counter argument, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Counting the counting the numbers, and you know, can the bean counter become a general authority <laughs> one day? Okay, so um, now paragraph two. Yeah, that's first. It, fail, it fails to account for Joseph's creation of the Book of Mormon, uh, which is covered in my first book. Charisma does not bestow the uh, composition or and oratory skills needed to create. You know, we went through this 269,320-word book with 207, although you remember uh, RFM just read that, so I won't bother going through it. But these eight enumerations actually come from Hale's 2021 fair presentation called Mind the Gap. The substance Mind the gap, the gap between Joseph Smith's education and the brilliance of the man or woman yeah. or person that must have been required to author the Book of Mormon. That's what he means by that, right? You know, yeah, it strikes me that- Yeah, we're gonna look at that really closely. It's strange, I feel like I'm channeling Daniel C. Peterson all of a sudden, yeah. because when he talks about 269,320 word book, the spirit of Daniel C. Peterson is telling me that any book is made up of words. And, and if has we numbers. Words, there would be a certain number of words in every yeah. book. Yeah, we're gonna and I'm not exactly it. sure what is so significant about this particular number of words in this particular book. He wants to name every fact about the book uh, without it, what I, I'm going to talk about the different categories in his uh, scheme of numbers here. Some of them just are irrelevant. But uh, so uh, the substance of which uh, this presentation at fair the substance of which he has repeated on Facebook and several interviews all over the place. So if we go to the next slide, so here he is giving his presentation. And it came with this like handout. It has two sides, but the first side is the one mostly he, he uh, dwells on in this uh, review. And you, you can see this uh, that one, there's several panels. There's a top panel, talks about the gap, and then, Below that is the Book of Mormon is complex, and he lists all these complexities, and we'll talk about those. And there's 32 of those, actually, not eight. So, But he's drawn from this. Then over here is Joseph Smith's composition skills in 1829. And then below that is Joseph Smith's oratory skills in 1829. And he, he cites these sources, and his objective is to show that there's a big gap between the Book of Mormon, which is this hugely complex literary book and then joseph smith's abilities which are so puny as you can see in that one panel so puny he can never have matched the task okay right. so um this is really getting back in a different way just by numbers mainly but getting back to a very old trope in mormon apologetics isn't it what's that that we make joseph smith as dumb as possible in order to oh, make yeah. the book of mormon as miraculous as possible Joe Smith played along with that, of course, because he was the unlearned in opposition to Anthon or Anton, right. uh, which uh, 
was the learned and he couldn't read the characters that he looked at and just could with the gift of God, of course. Mm -hmm. So they play, he played that unlearnedness up himself. Um, but as we're going to see, it just, it doesn't, uh, it's an apologetic. There's so a lot of apologetics are still alive. Now we're started in the first year. Hmm. You know, like Urim and Thummim. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so the so next slide. And, and I just want to say too, um, and maybe we get into it, but the composition skills of Joseph Smith, I just want to note for the listeners and the viewers. Do we do we have any firsthand sources of scribes who who acknowledge that Joseph Smith used the King James version of the Bible that his family had to do major parts of the Book of Mormon, which no. we know which version of the KJV was used. Yes, but we don't have any scribes that report no. that Joseph Smith used it. Do we have any scribes that reported that Joseph Smith used the Adam Clark's commentary for the King James version restoration or translation? No, no. No. Do we no. have any scribes who report him using the New Testament to insert pieces of, say, Matthew and Luke into the book of Moses or inserting Paul into Moroni? No. And so the moment you recognize how many times Joseph uses outside sources that we don't get any record of, you open up a door and a significant one to there are maybe other sources that Joseph Smith was able to use that nobody reports on. And, and Joseph Smith's composition skills don't matter in this equation because he's a dictator. He's he's dictating the Book of Mormon. He's well, you're on to you're on to the the answer there. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, he's Hales is comparing apples to oranges. Um, but the on the dictation thing, uh, the witnesses in later uh, the the letter part of the 19th century said that he put the stone in the hat and dictated the Book of Mormon, and they were trying to answer. A completely different question than we are asking, you know, and that was, did, did he have a manuscript like Solomon, Solomon Spalding's manuscript? Was he dictating from behind a curtain? You know, uh, could he had this manuscript? And no, he was out in the open and and uh, he had no manuscript he was reading from. Now, if he had taken out the Bible like he did, did for the inspired revision, and made marks in it and said, here, just copy this, or I'm just going to read this to you. It'd be a faster, right? Uh, nobody would think that that was cheating, right? Or that uh, he's plagiarizing. He's just going, and he makes a few corrections as he goes along, as he's dictating these 20 chapters of Isaiah into the Book of Mormon. Um, so, but nobody would think to mention that because that, that's not Solomon Spalding's manuscript. That's not a, a source. Everybody knows the Bible is in, you know, first and second Nephi. So there's no sense in talking about that. Anyway, so there is that. So we know he took the head out of the head at some point. And like any psychic, RFM will appreciate this. Like any psychic, they always have excuses for things that they're doing and they're having trouble or this or that. And they, they can stop. And Joe Smith was in total control. He can stop and start whenever he wanted. And the average number of uh, pa pages to be translated is very few. In the first edition, it's about eight pages I calculated per day. Um, and that's at a conservative 60 days uh, of uh, dictation. Um, we'll talk about other numbers that get closer to the truth a little bit later. But um, 
So uh, it's very doable. It's only about three hours of work per day on average. And, but he can stop and start whenever he wanted. And um, They can take breaks to go and skip stones down by the river for the yeah. first 116 pages, or he can have some kind of argument with Emma where he needs to stop because it's not coming. The, the divine yeah. emanations are not coming because his heart is not right with God, and he has to go out and repent in the orchard. There's all sorts of ways for him to stop, go out, take a break, and then come back later that day or maybe even the next day and commence translating again. Right. And, and we're talking I about the time you, issue I, right now, right? The, the time, the amount of time to translate. And, and yeah. once you, if you're not a believer in the literalness of Mormonism, then um, having Joseph need more time to come back and have Moroni visit every year at the Hill Cumorah doesn't make any sense. And no. the only secular explanation of that is that Joseph Smith was more than happy to go sooner, but that something was holding him back from being able to go sooner. And he, that means he didn't have something done to be able to pull over the trick. And so the moment you assume Mormonism isn't true, you Joseph Smith gets from 1823 until the publication, till the, till the manuscript goes to the print shop to work out any details, right? Yeah, yeah. So he has he's had a lot, a lot of time thinking, but... I believe his epistemology or his method at the time was to think it out in your mind and then pray if it's right and get spiritual confirmation of burning in the bosom. I think that was his. So he worked it out in his mind. And if he told Oliver Cowdery, I'm working it out in my mind, and he, that's what he did. There's no, there's, it's Emma that says that he would keep on going without stopping uh, for hours. Um, and that was the lost 116 pages, though. So Can I ask you a question, that, Dan? Yeah. When you wrote this book, which I'm laboring to try and pull over here without knocking everything else off the desk. Yeah. When you wrote this this book, Charisma Under Pressure, mm -hmm. would it be fair to say that you worked it out in your mind? Yeah, of course. It's every writer does that. It's it's not saying anything all that great. And even though we don't have a burning in the bosom, everybody works out problems until they feel that it's right, you right. know? And then they learn that they were wrong later. But <laughs> <laughs> so that and that does happen, you know, so but everybody that's that's how I work my life is to think about it, contemplate about it until I have a I feel good about the answer, you know, uh, and it's not and just like everybody else. It's usually a choice between two bad things, but <laughs> you he picked the lesser of the two evils. But so Joseph Smith and his de describing the writing process is is just uh, it's kind of spiritualizing a, what everybody does anyway. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, uh, OK, so we have this graph at the top. This you that gap. That one? Yeah. So this is required to dictate a long, complex book. And there's composition skills, oratory skills. And then Joseph Smith, here's Joseph Smith, his composition skills are very low because he didn't have very much education, okay? His or oratory skills weren't all that great because he wasn't a great public speaker like Sidney Rigdon. <laughs> These are apples to oranges. First of all, the first one, composition skills. The Book of Mormon does not require composition skills. He dictated it. It's, it's, it's an oral dictation, and it, it doesn't require literary skills. Hales compares the, uh, Joseph Smith 
to uh, JP uh, Rowling, uh, JK, JK Rowling, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, Hawthorne. Um, uh, I can't remember who else, but um, th these are the wrong people to compare Joseph Smith to. Uh, by the way, Dan, does he does he yeah. does he compare Joseph Smith to Patience Worth anywhere? Oh, for the automatic writing? No, he doesn't talk about that at all here, does he? In not fact, he here. Avoids it. Not, but he does get into talking about um, automatic writing and tries to make a distinction without a difference. Mm -hmm. And we did uh, an episode on that one. Yeah, right. So, uh, so I won't be doing dealing with that kind of here. Uh, I do bring it. <laughs> There's, remember Scott Dunn, I published Scott Dunn's article on automatic writing. And I don't think Joe Smith did it like they did it. He did it differently. Mm -hmm. uh, but they should stand as a as a caution to saying, oh, Joseph Smith couldn't do anything like that because there's other people that did it. Even if Joseph Smith did it better than them, it's a close enough proxim uh, approximation to what he did. Yes. How do you measure the lines on this graph? Like, how do we know... The oh, composition shit. skills required is five bars, and the composition skills yeah, held. Yeah, I don't is, know. What, it's that doesn't seem you know. Maven Maven made note that it was a qualitative versus a quantitative, and you can see how yeah. that he he makes the discrepancy work in his favor here. So when you actually look at the Book of Mormon, if it were a literary work, you wouldn't have all the bad grammar in it and all the wording overly wordiness to it. Um, so it's not a literary work. So why are, why are you putting the Book of Mormon in this camp of composition skills? It doesn't require composition skills. It requires exactly what Joseph Smith had, you know, poor grammar. Uh, he was uh, kind of a charismatic, unpolished speaker that had a lot of pull with people. Some people that heard him uh, couldn't resist his charisma. So... Then you have oratory skills. Well, he's dictating it. It doesn't require great oratory. Okay, it's your the, the comparison doesn't make any sense. There's, why is he doing that? I don't know. But he's trying to make the Book of Mormon look be way better than it is, and Joe Smith look dumber, you know. And he's talking about skills that Joseph Smith didn't need. He didn't need composition skills to write the Book of Mormon. And he didn't well, need oratory skills. I think he needed three things. Um, he didn't really need a lot of education. He needed the ability to tell stories. Yeah. He needed an understanding of the general coming forth and the history of the American Indians that was prevalent in his community. And he needed a familiarity with the Bible. Yeah. And I think that pretty much covers it. <laughs> well... Uh, he, when you look at the rest of his career, he he keeps on going in this fashion. So he has ability. And we'll, we'll get into that uh, in some other slides. Can I ask you um, a question, Dan? Yeah. And I'm sorry, uh, I know we got a lot of slides to get through, but I want to ask this question because in and around the time of 1829, when Joseph Smith is dictating the Book of Mormon as we have it today with Oliver Cowdery as a scribe primarily, he, that's not the only thing he's doing. He's also receiving revelations from God. Before, 18, before the composition of the Book of Mormon, during the composition of the Book of Mormon, and after the Book of Mormon was composed, um, even in 1829 and 1830. 
So in other words, we have a rather large sample of Joseph Smith being able to dictate things that we understand that Brian Hales and other faithful members would say it's coming from God. But still, that, that would seem to me something that we should be able to put on the table for purposes of yes. comparison of Joseph Smith's ability to dictate things in yeah. and around the same time as he's dictating the Book of Mormon. Did Brian Hales do that? Did he do what? Make that comparison. With the revelations? Yes. No, like you said, he, want, he, he wants to take those off the table. Uh, but you, I'll argue later that you can't. Okay, very good. <laughs> so, uh, so Hales misrepresents the Book of Mormon. Um, a careful examination of the Book of Mormon shows that it was dictated, not written by someone with intelligence, a limited storytelling ability, steeped in Bible culture, more comfortable with speaking than writing, but not an orator who used poor grammar, had limited education, and not terribly sophisticated. Sound like anyone you know? It sounds like Joseph Smith, because I've actually <laughs> read the first That's, edition of when you the read Book of Mormon, Mormon, that's what it that's, looks like. Yeah, you read the Book of Mormon, this is what comes out. The type of person that wrote the Book of Mormon, if you look at it honestly, uh, this is the kind of person you need and <laughs> to write it. Because it's not going to be a highly literary person. I mean, we had a highly literary person read it, like Mark Twain, and he said it was chloroform in print. It's not literature. You're in the wrong genre. The genre it should be compared to is pseudepigrapha. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I maintain that the closer one looks at the Book of Mormon, and the more you know about the historical Joseph Smith, the real one, <laughs> the smaller the gap becomes. But Hale's job is to make that gap as wide as possible. Okay, next slide. This is his, uh, his other panel. I had to divide it so that you could read it. So uh, the Book of Mormon is a complex book. Uh, we have, So what we were talking about before was, I believe, a conceptual problem to Hale's thesis, that if he tried to present this to a peer review board, this is what a conceptual thesis, this is what the first thing they would notice with his thesis. Now, the second thing is this, another conceptual problem. Not all these numbers are about complexity. Okay, next slide. Okay, uh, not that one. I think the next slide was the one with the pink highlighting. Yeah, that's it. That's what we need. So, the, these these uh, um, items, word count, number of sentences, average sentence length, reading level, eighth grade, right? How is having a really done? long sentence a sign of literary skill? Having it's an not, average, it's, it's not. average sentence length of, length of 39.3 words, my English teacher would have killed me. You got it, Bill. That's exactly right. It's the opposite. Yeah. So, and you'll see in the next graph that exactly that being portrayed. Uh, unique words, that is the total vocabulary of the book is 5,903 words. Then he says it's college level vocabulary words 
that are in the Bible. There's dozens of college level. Now, how he determines it's college level is by today's standards. And so what the problem he runs into, another conceptual problem he runs into is words that were not obsolete to us were common in the 19th century. They spoke them all the time. But now you need a college education to be probably familiar with some of these words, you know, because we don't use them anymore. And that's what he's doing. And there's a built-in contradiction here. So the number of sentences uh, contrasted with punctuation, none. Right. That's interesting. Number of sentences, 6,852 yeah. sentences in the Book of Mormon, but under punctuation, there's none. That sounds none. like one sentence to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's one sentence. It's the world's longest run-on sentence. Yeah, a reading level, eighth grade, but you still have to have a college-level vocabulary. That's a contradiction, <laughs> too, isn't it? Yeah. So I think this is kind of sloppy. And then can sloppy I ask you a question? Word. Is he okay. saying, because we're just talking about vocabulary, English words, right? And there's some that are have been, I don't know, arbitrarily assigned to college level. It's not like you have to go to college to learn certain words. You can't actually learn them without going to college. You can. But, yeah. But yeah, if you've got these these college he, level he used, words. Um, he used um, some um, uh, measurements that are used commonly he didn't make it up he these are measurements that he plugged in and plugged these words in and found out what level these word the vocabulary is on some of these dozens of words and you're just going to have a percentage. considered nowadays it's considered nowadays yeah. by whoever and you're not going to have a hundred percent on any of them in no. other words these words are only known by college yeah kids but you only have to have an eighth grade uh, read at an eighth grade level <laughs> so well, here's I, what I i'm asking are the so English these do words not that he says are college. List. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dan. Go ahead. Well, these do not belong in the list because he's trying to prove the book is complex. These don't do that. Mm, okay. Okay. He's saying that certain college words are, excuse me, certain words, English words in the Book of Mormon, are college level. So, what is he trying to say? That Joseph Smith didn't know these English words, and that new well, English words well, were being revealed to him on yeah, the, the stone right. that he then dictates without knowing what they mean. That's right. That's he there's the, the implication of all this is that he's just reading off of the stone. Stu words that he doesn't know. He has to spell out some words. And so Coll college English words that he doesn't know. <laughs> or whatever. It was proper yeah. nouns that we know about that Emma mentioned. In fact it was they make it in the book says he knew them. Yeah. So so does Brian believe in a tight translation, a purely even worse than tight, it's a purely mechanical reading off of the stone. Uh, or does he believe in a loose translation, like most of these most apologists, except maybe Royal Skousen? You know, um, most apologists believe because they, they're trying to answer all the bad language and uh, anachronisms, the New Testament anachronisms, or literary and historical anachronisms, they have to go with Joseph Smith participating more in the in the translation process. And the more he participates in the translation process, the weaker Hale's evidence becomes. He, How can you argue Joseph Smith, this uh, illiterate guy, 
and at the same time argue that he's loosely translating this into the best language he can command. I think I can guarantee you that Brian Hales is going to do what all reputable apologists do, and that is that the Book of Mormon is tightly translated when it helps the apologists for it to be tightly translated, like in a lot of these apparent arguments, even though it's a list of statistics, really, and that the Book of Mormon is loosely translated when the apologist needs for it to be loosely translated. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the game. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so we have a few conceptual problems with his thesis, and he needs to rethink this a little bit, I think. Uh, he's writing a book now on this, so I'm, I hope I can help. Um, the next slide. I expect he'll be reaching out to you. <laughs> so we here we have a complex book, sentence length. Now, so here's the Book of Mormon, 39.3% is words per yeah, 39.3 words per sentence average yes yeah almost 40 and then words look at all the rest these other books tale of two cities the hobbit what no why are all these sentences so short are they dumber than the book of mormon whoever wrote the book of mormon you know god or you know moroni nephi you know they must have been pretty smart but no, it's just there's a reason why these guys aren't writing long sentences. It's not like they didn't know how. In, in, unless you're German, <laughs> you know, if you're German, you write really long sentences, you know, with the verb at the end. And <laughs> so you have to really listen. But um, so there's a reason why these sentences are so long. And you, you, the same sentences you will find in Joseph Smith's normal writing. The same type of sentence length, you know, like the 1832 history where he's writing. And why is that? It's a is it one run, run on sentence. Is it because he has difficulty coming to the point? Well, because when you're speaking orally instead of writing, because the Book of Mormon is an oral book, right? It's an oral performance, like Bill Davis says, you know, um, it's an oral performance and it's oral and you use a lot of conjunctions. You know, and you just keep going. There's no punctuation really when you're speaking, right? So that's why these sentences turn out to be so long and why there's so much digression and why the whole Book of Mormon is so wordy, you know, unnecessarily wordy and redundant, you know, because it's an oral presentation. It's not written. You wouldn't, somebody writing, somebody that was a, a composing, wouldn't wouldn't have this type of book so that's what i'm arguing is that the book of mormon is what exactly what you would expect joseph smith to produce orally you know so okay so the next, exact opposite mirror image of what brian hales is arguing yeah you're right because uh this is this is an area where i think we do need to study uh more is Joseph Smith's language, but it's very, it's, there's some, uh, you know, barriers to doing a really good job of it because we lack certain kind kinds of sources we need, but we still have to do it. And, and some, some even Mormon scholars have started to do this kind of, uh, study of intertextuality. So here we have the book of Mormon is a complex book. Uh, this is another category, what I call non-evidence, Okay, dialect, early English, 
That's the and, sign of it being a complex book. Dan, yeah. is, that the ghost, is that the ghost committee at work, the early English? It, yes, yes. That's where it uses uh, uh, grammar forms that date way back to the, before the King James Version. And basically, I think the best, I mean, it's, it leads to like crazy conclusions, but uh, if you believe that's true, but it's because it's an oral book, you know, because you can't go on Google and Google some of these uh, sentence structures and try to find them because people wrote differently than they spoke. Okay. And you still have people like the Quakers who speak the, you know, um, kind of uh, these and those type things. Even in the 19th century, they were speaking right. that way. Nothing and, is better for thee than me. Yeah. So uh, you have that, you still have dialect. They, you know, Jonathan Edwards is from the 19th century. And you can find some of those uh, early English things that Skousen tries to sh uh, show and Carmack tried to show uh, in Jonathan Edwards' writings. These things show up there because like in the 17th century, you know, 18, I mean, the 18th, 17th, and 17th century kind of overlapping. And so you still have people... Uh, Joe Smith's father, born in 1772, uh, and you have him, and you have Azel Smith, born before that. I don't know his birthday, but before that, he still he still has contact with people that were that grew up in the time period, okay, or spoke still spoke that kind of language, uh, that kind of type of. Um, word structure okay and there's only a few things and they're making a big theory out of nothing in my opinion so mm -hmm. the di early english dialect parallel phraseology like chiasmus uh parallel phraseology like al alternates that's like going a b c a b c a b c you know in in st structure poetic structure um poetic literary forms so there's other kinds like anaphora, epistrophe, you know, these kinds of, um, chiasmus is just one rhetorical repetition technique among uh, many others that all appear in the Book of Mormon, appear in Joseph Smith's writings, appear in Joseph Smith's revelations. You know, they appear everywhere because they are taught in, in books of rhetoric. Chiasmus is taught in books of rhetoric to ministers and even in schools, there's rhetorical books that include chiasmus lessons, little short chiasmus, chiasms, reverse parallelism. They appear in those kind of books, but under a different name that nobody looks under. And it's anti-metaboly. Hmm. Okay. So anti-metaboly, like it's aura and all these epistrophe, like I mentioned, Anti-metaboly is, is a reverse parallelism, and they'll give examples in some of these books. Uh, they'll give examples out of the Bible of this reverse parallelism, and they'll give some out of English literature. You know, so it wasn't unknown to Joseph to the to uh, ministers, and ministers learned rhetoric as part of their training, in, in especially in the New England type. Uh, ministers who were very formal and all that, but they learned these. Uh, well, he, Hales refers to it as poetic, but it's really rhetorical 
uh, repetition. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's, right. that's a yeah, whole other subject. I just mentioned something in passing. It only occurred to me recently that every single one of my podcasts, virtually every one, I do to a majority of the extent extemporaneously. I'll have some notes. I might read a few yeah, that's things. Pretty good. Speaking, that's pretty good. It's better than I can do. Well, it takes a lot of editing afterward, <laughs> but but it's extemporaneous. And so often I've gotten comments from people on the one hand saying, why do you repeat yourself so much? And other people saying, because it helps get the point across. But regardless of your opinion about it, the fact is that what I do is I kind of, here's the point and I'll talk about the point and then I'll come back to the point again and then I'll talk about that and then in another way and I'll come back to the point. That's where the repetition comes from because they keep coming back to the point after talking about other things. And it only occurred to me that if this were written down, if somebody did a transcript of one of these podcasts, then it wouldn't take too much ability to be able to go back and look at these patterns and ascribe them to ancient Hebrew authors. Yeah, well, um, Wesley Walters, uh, he's a min- he was a Presbyterian minister and new- and he preached and he said is that it's a natural kind of natural form you get into is if you have several elements to discuss and when you reach the end and you want to emphasize there's only two ways to go to repeat them in the same order or reverse order and so um uh chiasmus is a huge subject that i could talk about for hours but um most there's all he Hale's list 367. You know, there aren't 367 chiasms in the Book of Mormon. There's, I have a book where some uh, re- Mormon researcher ha- had thousands and he was seeing chiasms like everywhere. And right. uh, when this the tighter, what... the tighter the chiasm, the tighter and the elements are tight, the, the more evidence you have of intentionality. But the looser and the wider it gets, more spread Mm -hmm. out, it becomes more of the ingenuity of the researcher. It's a danger that they are seeing things in it. When they start editing things out, and then you, John Welsh, it got so out of hand, like this guy had thousands, it got so out of hand, John Welsh, or Jack Welsh, however you want to call him, um, he made some criteria for chiasmus, and, and what one of them's like, let's say, an imbalance where one of the elements on the opposite side is so much smaller or so much bigger than the other one. It's so imbalanced, right? And he thought that that would be a criticism that would make it less likely. And most of these 367 examples fall into this and other kinds of imbalance. Uh, the word isn't exactly the same. It takes a little bit of imagination to make the two elements uh, the same because it's not like a synonym all the time. You know, it's an antonym or some other kind of loose connection. So there's a lot of room for what what I, I, I would call um, mental pareidolia. Okay, pareidolia is uh, like when you look at the clouds and see shapes and things, and or you look at the toast and you see Jesus's face on it or something, mm-hmm. a burnt toast, and you can do that mentally too, where you start connecting things, and the brain just humans are pattern making machines, you know. Yes, 
And the problem with these kind of lists, from my point of view, is that the person who's making it, which is Brian Hales, is obviously motivated to make these numbers as big as possible. Yeah, right. So there's there's no no uh, evidence that he is being uh, balanced in his approach. Right. Hey, Dan, this is really, really fascinating. I love this. I love what you're going to say tonight. Just want to draw your attention to that old clock on the wall, which has us at an hour and seven minutes into tonight's show. I'll take responsibility for the first seven minutes before we got you on. But uh, I want to make sure we get to everything is what I'm All uh, right. Thank you for the reminder. So these, I would say you, you, uh, if you include Joseph Smith in the process, you got to take these off. There, and they uh, these are they, they somewhat have to do with complexity but as you see it doesn't it it's more there because of Joseph Smith uh it's a reflection of Joseph Smith's abilities and we'll talk about that so right and now I'm going to interrupt you again and I apologize and say not only is he motivated to come up with the biggest numbers in each of the categories he's also motivated to come up with the biggest number of categories yeah yeah right 32 so here next slide. Okay, so this is where Joseph Smith's uh, composition skills in 1829 and oratory skills in 1829. 1829 is kind of an artificial restriction. Uh, These are actual red herrings, too, because, as I mentioned before, the Book of Mormon doesn't require these things. And Joseph Smith, uh, we we know already that Joseph Smith wasn't um, literary. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and neither is the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith's not oratory, and neither is the Book of Mormon. So these are red herrings. The 1829 restriction is rel- irrelevant since the Book of Mormon doesn't require composition or oratory skills. Proving that Joseph Smith wasn't formally educated or wasn't a great public speaker is is irrelevant. And the, and the elements, when you go through it, that's basically what he's trying to do is to prove that Joseph Smith wasn't literary. He had he, he, he was poorly educated, had little education, you know, and he had bad grammar. So, uh, next slide. Okay, so this is um, the second paragraph. So, charisma does not bestow the composition or, and oratory skills needed to create the Book of Mormon. As already discussed, Hale's wording here is misleading, indeed, a red herring. Since the Book of Mormon is the result of dictation, which is different than writing or composition or public speaking. If education and literary composition skills were necessary to write the Book of Mormon, we wouldn't have the bad grammar and thousands of corrections later. Charisma is closely associated with the power of persuasion and a... a, uh, a certain command of the language, I believe, uh, is necessary for Joseph Smith to uh, have accomplished what he did. I believe the historical record shows Joseph Smith was charismatically qualified leader. So next. So here we are, Joseph Smith's oratory skills. Uh, as a Methodist exhorter in his youth, well, he well understood the principle of speaking extemporaneously. Methodists didn't believe in reading their sermons like, you know, Presbyterians and Congregationalists. He continued his life. He didn't have uh, prepared texts except on one occasion. (laughs) Guess what that is? When he read the dedicatory prayer in the Kirtland Temple, 
for which he was he received criticism for reading it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh he wasn't uh regarded as a great orator like saint Iridium, but that's not what we find in the book of mormon anyway instead he had what someone visiting nauvoo described as rough eloquence that held audiences spellbound so here we have a couple of quotes uh uh, we have, this is a, the first one's a non-Mormon, Edwin D. Leon. Um, the prophet spoke fl very fluently, but ungra ungrammatically, like an un uneducated man, but he possessed the gift of a rough eloquence and could most persuasive when he tried. The next one is uh, Wandel Mace, a, a Mormon. Uh, Joe Smith was very interesting and eloquent in speech. So Hales doesn't quote these in his thing, of course. Well, they're not um, 1829. <laughs> right. So, so if he want, if he wants to argue with me, he has to show me how what event changed Joseph Smith into becoming uh, not uh, polished but yet eloquent, just like so. You know. And now, if he showed me that Joseph Smith all of a sudden acquired literacy to the point where he he could uh, give an oration like Senior Rigdon. That'd be one thing, but he never could, never. But so these people are describing some guy that he didn't acquire anything along the way that Hales can point to to change what he was in 1829 to what he was when these people are listening to him. Some of these people are describing very early uh, acquaintance with him. Others are later. Uh, Howard Corey. I sat and listened to his preaching at the stand in Nauvoo a great many times when I have been completely carried away with his indescribable eloquence, power, and of expression. Hey, Dan. I think he froze up there. Yeah. You froze up there, Dan. Don't know if you can hear me right now, but we're waiting for things to clear up in Ohio. Okay, I'll complete away. that sentence uh, from Howard Corey while we're waiting for Dan. I sat and listened to his Joseph Smith's preaching at the stand in Nauvoo a great many times when I have been completely carried away with his indescribable eloquence, power of expression, speaking as I have never heard any other man speak. You know, you look at those three quotes. I mean, again, LDS believers and apologists trump out the same quotes all the time that show Joseph Smith to be inadequate at speaking but there are other quotes as we're seeing here for instance that offer a different view and almost never do the apologists point to these ones well right and of course it does depend it, they're very good at categorizing quotes when they're talking about how dumb joseph smith was in order to play up the marvel of the book of mormon then you get a certain set of quotes like brian hales had in his handout that was up there earlier on the screen in a slide yeah. when they're talking about joseph smith's eloquence and the power of his speaking and how the spirit bore witness to people through the gift that he had from god then you get quotes like this but i do think it's important to take them all together so that we can have a more fully developed picture of joseph smith as opposed to the caricature of joseph smith that brian hales has created even though he accuses dan vogel of creating a caricature of joseph smith himself yeah, we, we should probably, before Dan gets back, we should probably skip to like slide 40. What do you That'd think? That'd be great. 
<laughs> I tell you what, why don't we ditch him so that when he comes back, we aren't even here. Okay, everybody. There we go. We'll just end the show, folks. Let's go be uh, let's go hide in different rooms and behind furniture. Turn off the point, lights I'm when having... he comes back, we'll jump out and say surprise. There you go. I like it. At this point, I'm I'm worried that his whole computer shut down, which is what I think may have happened with the length of time this is taking. But um, okay. you know, when we go back, I don't want to necessarily go through all these, but you know what we need? We need Maven. Yeah, Maven. Can we sum it up, Maven? I, I'm glad you thought so, because I just thought I would like to share some things. I don't know if I can get them pulled up here now, but I'm going to try. So Mike from LDS Discussions came in. So I hope uh, Dan will see this later. But uh, he so um, he says that he he's worked with Amazon for over 20 years. Um, so he says he, he's got some advice. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and put him on the screen, too. Um, so number one, he says it's clear that Brian brought, bought the book so that his review would carry more weight, given that he hasn't even read it yet. Verified purchases get weighted heavier than non-verified purchases do. And he's talking hmm. about the review system there. Okay. Number two, uh, Amazon always highlights the quote unquote most helpful, positive and negative review. Hills would know what a great chance that is to promote himself as the lone negative review, which leaves him at the top. Number three, typically the creator of a product can reply to reviews. So he says, I don't know if Dan can email Amazon to get his reply posted, but he could give that a shot to see if they can add that for him. And then uh, number four, he says, holy frick. So Mike's still in um, <laughs> swear mode, I think. So he says, uh, how clueless is Hales to admit he hasn't even finished reading the book to someone asking about his review. Not that it could get the review removed, but just wanted to add that here. Um, number five, one possible workaround would be to have a fan write a two-star review that's critical of the problems of church history. That's just to get up. But anyway, um, yeah, the, I thought those were really interesting things to um, put here as well. And uh, it just does show more I guess, uh, cleverness, I guess, on Brian's part to do what he did, um, it, you know, on, on purpose, I guess. Hmm. I'm glad you shared so, that with, yeah. with and us. I did and thanks to Mike for, for putting that up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this here, Should when we, we go, go back ahead? to one of, the, <laughs> one of the slides here that he showed, it, you're saying the Book of Mormon's a complex book, but an eighth grade reading level isn't complex. 39.3 words per sentence isn't complex. No punctuation isn't complex. College level vocabulary, again, if the words made it into the book, then Joseph had some sense that of what the words were. So I don't think it's fair to, to give, you know, in the invisible credit for that. Joseph Smith can certainly get credit for that. And we've already gone over uh, his education. Connected to his brother at Dartmouth, we've talked about... Uh, how much time Joseph Smith had to prepare. We talked about dictating is completely different than composing an actual, actual written work. Yeah. I know. And if you go down on that left column Speaking to three up Mike. from the bottom, he's got Bible intertextuality, hundreds of phrases and integrations yeah, from the Bible in the Book of Mormon. That's called plagiarism. Well, it certainly yes. makes it complex, but I don't know that that's in a way that Brian Hales really wants to promote. Yeah. And I think when you start to compare these books to other works, sorry, maybe I think hey everybody, like I'm going to leave this to you. I'm just going to back out here a second, see if I can call Dan on the phone and yeah, no sweat. See let's how see that tornado happening. in his neighborhood's doing. Yeah, let's make sure he's okay. Um, when I think when we compare these, the Book of Mormon to other books, the the Late War, the First Book of Napoleon, um, 
I just think these kinds of things become less interesting. And, and you can see Hales is really trying to kind of pick his spots to make this sound really good. But it, it's like, it, it, you know, uh, Jacob Hansen accused me of what's it called? A gish gamut, something like that. Gish gallop. Oh, gish gallop. Yeah, which is just a, a long list for the sake of having a long list. That's what the hell this is right here. It's just a long list for the sake of having a long list. I think that's really ironic of Jacob to accuse you of, by the way. I'm just going to put that out there. Well, if you use and the collective witness model, then then his, he's right. <laughs> well, Gish Galloping is usually, it, it's spoken. It's talking in debates where you're just, you're talking so much, you like overpower the other person or you give like yeah. way too many things to respond to. And that's yeah. exactly what he does. Like in every interview or that's, that's with someone of an opposing view, he just talks over them. Uh, and you, you you really have to interrupt to get <laughs> to be able I, to even I try learned to the start hard way. responding to things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so for Jacob, I I didn't know he said that, but that's really funny to me. But I did also want to point out, like, it's give I guess a reverse shout out to my LDS discussions. Uh, his podcast on Mormon stories goes into like really deep dives into Joseph Smith and a lot of like Book of Mormon creation type versus loose translation, et cetera. So that's also a good resource, I think, for the kinds of things we're talking about here. But I, I think we should go ahead and like, keep moving on. I, I, or do you really want to wait for Dan to come back? Uh, I mean, yeah, he's got, I, I, I know he's, he's definitely got his own thing, but the, some of these things, you know, that we've talked about. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And Radio Free Mormons not back either. <laughs> Maybe yeah, we so will have to make this a part two after all. The two, you know, when you've got names of characters, two hundred and seven character names. Again, there are certain authors of books. Lord of the Rings being a great example, where you get an introduction to tons of characters, so I'm back. And names of people. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I just okay. jumped right in. So I'm back. Well, I thought I was kidding about storms knocking out his internet, and they are having storms in Ohio, and his internet did get knocked out. And he says, sometimes it gets, knocked, it gets knocked out, it comes right back, and this is the longest it's been. And we've got no ETA on Dan being able to show up. So I told Dan, I said, well, you know, you've got a lot of work into this. There's a lot of material to cover. I felt bad at the hour mark, you know, trying to hurry you through it. And I said, maybe this would be a good thing to have as a two-part episode. Mm -hmm. And he can come back next week. I know that's your week, Bill. Or we can, Let's do that's it. okay? Yep. Okay, so we'll have Dan Vogel come back next week. He indicated that that was, uh, worked for him. And hopefully the storms will have passed by then. But um, I, I was just trying to, you know, again, just trying to buy a moment here to smoothly transition to exiting the show. But um, I think you really have to take all of this data that Brian's making and you have to parse it out. Because I was telling Maven before you came back, you know, Jacob Hansen accused me of doing a gish gallop. And, and really what Brian Hales is doing here is a gish gallop. He's just putting things down, whether they actually help his case or hurt his case. Right. And um, and this idea that you'd have to also compare it to other works of literature and maybe ones that are similar to the Book of Mormon, Late War, First Book of Napoleon, and gauge how long those ones are words per sentence or how many new character names do those books add and compare it with other books within literature. Because J.R. Tolkien writing a book is much different than Heavenly Father, who has all potential at his fingertips mm -hmm. to be giving Joseph Smith a book. Um, can can anyway. I tell you something here? Uh, maybe I'll mention it next week. Maybe I'll forget. But as long as I'm remembering it now, there was a time 30 years ago when I was studying the Book of Mormon very closely, not just for apologetic purposes, but to try and understand what the message was. 
and I had an idea in mind that I would write a paper analyzing the different sermons in the Book of Mormon because I felt that each sermon, you know, had a certain complexity. There was a point that was being made and frequently we would lose that point when we just try and quote verses out of it. So I made a point of going through the Book of Mormon from beginning to end to list the number of sermons that I could use. In other words, that there were in the book that would be the subject of the paper. That's about how far it got, by the way. Yeah. There but were 10. There were 10 sermons that I found. So that makes me wonder where it is that Brian is coming up with 63 sermons in the book. Now, maybe I missed one, maybe I missed two, maybe I missed five, maybe I missed, but I didn't miss 53 sermons right, right. in the Book of Mormon. He is padding his figures, he's fudging his numbers, and he's cooking his books of Mormon. That's a great point, RFM. And it's that's something that I thought of when I first had come across some of these uh, graphs and you know articles uh, by Brian, is that I wonder, does he actually have them listed out or written anywhere so that they can be verified? Uh, that was something that I occurred to me. And I don't know if maybe the audience knows uh, if he's got you know, when he when he lists, you know, all of the unique names in the Book of Mormon, etc. It, it, I to me, a lot of them seem padded. But again, I, I mean, I guess I can see where off the top of my head, I wouldn't exactly maybe come up with something really accurate. Uh, but I just yeah, I would like to see that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I would like to see them listed out uh, somewhere for Brian to be able to back all of this stuff up. What, what is amazing about the Book of Mormon, and really, I, I can't explain this, it's that there are so many different places that information seems to be coming from, but as uh, either Anthony Miller or Terrell Givens, one of those two, I think, called it a, uh, Joseph Smith an eclectic aggregator. Eclectic aggregator? Yeah, eclectic aggregator. And yeah. uh, Terrell Givens uses the word bricolage, right? Right. And it's this idea of taking all of these different facets of 19th century material and working them into one consistent story. And we know generally a majority of the places where this information is coming from, for instance, uh, Joseph Smith senior's dream, making it in as the dream of the tree of life. Mm -hmm. But in order to acknowledge that incredible feat, which I think is the most incredible feat of the book of Mormon is taking all this 19th century material or older material that was available to Joseph Smith and him putting it into one story is that you'd have to admit that it was 19th century or accessible material in the first place. Right. And th this is where uh, Terrell Givens goes, that the miracle of the Book of Mormon is not that it produces anything new or original or ancient or exclusively ancient, I should say. The miracle of the Book of Mormon based upon Terrell Givens' analysis is the way in which Joseph Smith is inspired to pick and choose elements and ideas and concepts and literature from his own society and cobble them all together like a bricolure would a piece of bricolage because that's what bricolage is you take all these disparate pieces throw them together come up with something new that's his model for the book of mormon and i think he's yeah. correct i just don't see the inspiration in it that tarot given sees yeah. And and I could open up the call. I didn't done anything with the call lines, but it seems to make more sense to me to maybe take calls at the end Absolutely. of Absolutely. Is that okay you with you, Maven? Oh, you want to do it now? Yeah, or sure. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, oh, okay. it's good. Then I will I'll open them up. I mean, we're an hour and a half. We don't have to do three hours every 
Wednesday. No, not at all. And if you want to put the call number up on the screen, Maven, that'll help me a bunch. There's three sixes in there somewhere. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Here we go. Six six two six six seven six 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 seven. Well, I know we had one chatter actually try to uh, said that she tried calling already before uh, before the lights were even open. So we'll see if she tries again. You so. never saw James Raphael's uh, email to me, huh? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> he named other lies. I, the, I look forward. That is the first one. Um, I thought maybe I would try I, to find I, it really quick since we had kind of a snafu here with Dan getting caught into some sort of storm. I, I, yeah, you know, that would be, uh, I, I, that's really what they want. And I think, um, you know, if uh, if you don't, your integrity is totally called into question yeah, here. So I yeah, so. yeah. An, an honest person would do the, exactly that. I, I am curious. James Raphael <laughs> reminds me of a Three Dog Night song. Yeah, so let's see here. Um, he says, this one actually conveniently involves both of both of you and works well if you agree on the first bullet below. Uh, I called for the first time on episode 98. Yes, that was actually the first time I called. Go listen back. You forced me into a yes or no answer to your question about Joseph Smith and 14-year-old marriages being right or wrong. And I remember that, by the way. Um, by the way, completely unrelated to and not on topic of the show about properties and stuff. And you both just scolded me for answering it with nuance. Am I and the then, other one who scolded What's him? that? Am I the other when he says you both, both of you? No, I think Maven's the other one. And then, and then he uses uh, me uh, talking about, let's say, so this world you claim to live in, you become a citizen and governor. I think this is my conversation with Jacob Hansen. And uh, I say we don't live in a binary world. And so by saying we don't live in a binary world in one instance, and then in another instance, pushing somebody into a yes or no answer is me being dishonest. Mm. rather than maybe sometimes things are complex and sometimes you just need to say yes or no, whether you stand up for child brides or not. Right. Like maybe there's a difference. And well, then uh, you're listening to you I read what James Raphael wrote. And it sounds to me kind of like the book of Mormon. I bet James Raphael could dictate a book of Mormon the way he writes. It's so spongy and expansive and it takes so long for him to get to a point if he ever actually gets to it. Oh, and you're going to love his second one. His second one was that we accidentally at one time had somebody's phone number show up on our screen. And I went back and we deleted a segment of our, a section of our show. And it ended up getting rid of the comments for that show. But we accidentally had our call screen up visible to our audience. So if somebody was calling and wanting to be anonymous, their number showed on the screen for just a brief moment. Hmm. He says, and I did. After that, I said, I'm really sorry about that. And we will try really hard to never have that happen again. We won't give out anybody's number certainly not intentionally. But then when uh, there was a caller that you needed the number for, and you called him personally and did an episode on it about a yeah, two Justin. months ago. When you, when I gave you Justin's number, James thinks that makes me a liar because when I say I won't give the number to the audience, that also means I can't give the number to you. So you can see <laughs> the absurdity in such a claim. Now, by the way, he's really trying really yeah, hard, but not really, <laughs> so not hard. really. There are so Bless much easier heart. ones. Remember, so for instance, I said uh, I would follow the rules of the church and not record my disciplinary court, and it got recorded anyway. And sort of I did, and sort of I didn't, because John Dillon helped. That is a sort of Ooh, deception. Way to throw That's John Dillon under the bus. If James really wanted to pick out lies, that would be a good one, right? 
but that's not one he picks. It, oh, it, they're these stupid it ones. It's almost like he, again, no offense. And I don't mean this lightly. I know people struggle. It's almost like there's something off there because he's nitpicking at things and they don't, they're not really good things to be the examples that one would Straining pick to build a case. Yeah. At swallowing camels, maybe. Yeah. So nice there, New Testament James reference, Maven. Hmm? Nice New Testament reference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I do have a caller if you want them. Uh, yes, I hope it's James Raphael. Maybe yep. it's I wish Vogel. it was because these are horrible. All right. So I, I don't have a name here, but we'll take it. All right. Caller, you're on the air. What's the name? Hey, y'all. My name's Eric. All right, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and, I, and I'm glad I was able to make it in. You know, th this argument that Brian Hales makes, it, it's been made in the church for years. And even when I was a, a, a full-in, 100% believer, I never gave it much weight. And it's because it's an argument that is aimed at ignorant people. It, it's an argument that's aimed at a population that, by and large, doesn't read. And, and, and these days, we don't read. Very few people read. Now, I happened to be a nerd as a kid. I happened to read a lot. And it turns out that the fact that a book exists isn't a miracle. The fact that a book has a lot of words isn't a miracle. The fact that a book has a lot of pages isn't a miracle. Now, those types of things are very impressive to ignorant people and people who haven't had the experience of reading. But to people who have read, particularly people in Joseph Smith's time, the fact that the book existed wasn't very impressive. In fact, if you look at the, the opposition to the Book of Mormon in his day, or, or, or the apologetic responses, there really wasn't a line of reasoning that was, well, look, look how many pages there are. Look how many words there are. Isn't that impressive? Because people read, they understood that books exist. They understood that people could write books, even in the space of 60 days. Brian Hales knows that he is targeting ignorant people with this nonsense. He's written books. He knows that books aren't miracles. He's peddling this as an intentional uh, tactic to, to mislead a populist that, that by and large doesn't read these days. That's a great point, Eric. He's trying to wow the widow in Parowan. Just up the road from me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, again, for, for people who don't read, you know, the, the fact that Lord of the Rings exists is a miracle. The, the fact that the works of Shakespeare exist it's miraculous to them that people write books all the time. Also, you know, the, the fact um, um, dictation is kind of a lost art. I, I caught it at the very end of my career mm -hmm. as I was writing legal briefs. Right. And, you know, I, I dictated all the time. And it, when you're just learning it, it's very important. Can you say that word again? I think we just lost you. Oh, say oh there, sorry, I, I, I'm not sure. You were saying uh, something about uh, dictating, and at the beginning, it's difficult to learn how to dictate, yeah, but once you get the hang of it, you were saying, I think. 
Exactly. It's incredibly difficult in the beginning, and I can understand why people would be impressed that this long book could be dictated. But the truth is, once you know how to dictate, once you have some, some um, practice at it, it's really quite simple. And doing eight pages a day, like Joseph Smith was doing, is not an impressive feat. People were doing it in his day all the time. It also, I mean, there's there's lots of other sacred texts that are long. Bhagavad Gita, for instance where Brian would self-admit that that's not the Lord's holy sacred canon to bring people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet it is a complex book. It's got lots of words. It's really long. There's lots of pages. I just don't, again, I don't think that these arguments really hold water. It really seems like a naive way to approach trying to prove the church it is, is. And I think the way that Brian words it even, when he just says, the, where did all the words come from? I just was astounded when I, when I first heard him say that. I just, what, I, I just. Well, I will tell you, speaking ridiculous. of Shakespeare, like Eric just did, that reminds me of one of my fav favorite lines in Shakespeare, where Polonius is going up to Hamlet, who's kind of presenting to be a little bit off in the head. Uh, and he's in the library because he wants to find out why it is that he's uh, a little bit off in the head. Anyway, he says, to, uh, Hamlet's reading a book. And Polonius says, what is it you're reading, my lord? And Hamlet looks at him and he goes, words, words, words. So that's, that's an easy Shakespeare quote if you want. Just say words three times and you're quoting Hamlet. But yeah, that's what books are made there up you of. Go. That's what you're reading. You're reading words. And I want to say just a couple of things here if I can, because I may not remember them for next week. Number one, number one is this, is that there has been a steady stream of apologetic attempts to defend the Book of Mormon and Mormonism without having to actually deal with the issues. There was first, uh, I don't know if it was first, but uh, there was Corbridge, Elder Corbridge, the Corbridge maneuver, right? You separate the primary questions from the secondary questions, and the secondary questions are those nasty issues that you don't have to worry about. All I have to do is worry about the primary questions which have to do with was joseph smith a prophet and is the book of mormon the word of god and you pray about it you get your answer and that you've taken care of the primary questions right you're good to go because you have avoided dealing with the issues the second one came from my former missionary companion elder mckay who says that even though there's compelling reasons to doubt mormonism you need to stare those down and have faith to believe so you're not dealing with the issues except to stare them down and ignore them and not be bothered by them and look the other way chastely. Then you get uh, Jacob Hansen, right? Uh, Bill, who's come up with his five uh, prong thing. Yeah, you know, it's his own model, model, which mm -hmm. is designed to not have to deal with the issues. If you can find a way to prove Mormonism true without dealing with all the issues that indicate strongly that it's not, yeah, that's the brass ring. And now we've got Brian Hales, who's doing the same thing. He's trying to mount a defense of the Book of Mormon that intentionally avoids dealing with the issues. So if you throw out a bunch of numbers, you're not dealing with the issues involved. And the issues are legion. So this seems to be a practice that's going on among Book of Mormon and Mormon apologists today. How do we come up with a way to defend the Book of Mormon without dealing with the issues? And this seems to be another in a long line of those. The second thing I was going to say, let me and see I, if I could. Yeah, go ahead. Please uh, speak to that, Maven. 
Well, I want you to finish your second thing. I just because I'm going to be bringing up something entirely different. Hmm. Well, why don't you bring it up? Because my second thing was entirely different, okay. and I'm not sure I remember it right now. Okay, I'm going to add this to the stream. Uh, mm. November is National Novel Writing Month. Uh, this has been going on for quite a while, and it's it's a challenge out there for uh, and you know anybody can join it. So if this is something that you're interested in, first of all, you've probably already heard of it if that's the case. But if not, uh, yeah, there's a, a whole uh, uh, nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to this. Uh, this is the website here. Um, so yeah, it's a began in 1999 and look at here the the challenge is to write 50,000 words of a novel in 30 days so just now just each year on November this is 1st a challenge that people yep hundreds of thousands of people around the world begin to write determined to end the month with a first draft really hundreds hundreds of thousands that's a lot of people this might is be a, a little bit of this puffery, is a really but... popular thing they entered this, the, this they entered the month as elementary unknown. school teachers, mechanics, or stay-at-home parents. They leave novelists, and now you're going to be one of them. Wow! So this is actually happening. I'm I'm guessing that uh, a number of these people succeed in writing fifty thousand yeah. words of a novel in thirty days. This has been this. I, I mean, I've heard of it before. So I mean, that's why I knew to, to look it up just now. But yeah, I and. It's it's just not that weird of a thing. This is something people all over regularly take on. So, wow! I, I bet we've had people in the chat that have done it. I had never heard of this before. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is. I I feel every November. I I actually don't remember when I first heard of it, but I I know I've known about it for at least several years because I do tend to see, and it might just be how you know the algorithms work with the you know, social media and stuff. But I always start seeing these things pop up around November of people trying this challenge. And I've always thought it was cool and I maybe someday I'll try it. But anyway, yeah, just just putting that out there. And in the remember? upper left-hand corner appears to be a new word. Like Joseph Smith apparently created a bunch of them for the Book of Mormon. It's NaNoWriMo, oh. which is Reformed yeah, Egyptian for what, Maven? <laughs> National Novel Writing Month. <laughs> Or is it men on his throne? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's my contribution. Okay. Uh, RFM, if you remember, great. If not, I've got Santiago on the phone. Santiago. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Where in the world is Carmen Santiago? You're on Mormonism Live. Hello. Uh, San Diego. San Diego. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. You're on the show, my Sorry friend. about yeah, that. Bill was taking poetic license. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, San Diego I want to also wonder if you can... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. If you consider, like, current current events okay to talk about, especially if it's, like, relevant in some ways. Well, we'd like to sort of stay on topic with... Uh, with the subject of tonight's show. Okay. Well, I, was, I just asked to have to do with Elder Holland and it's about Elder Holland. Go ahead, San Diego. Elder Holland. Yeah. <laughs> so is that okay if I ask about that? What What's the question? Kind of yeah. What's the question? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen um, like the report of his wife's death 
Parker's wife, and they're not. Yeah, yeah. Sister Holland passed away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess like for me, you know, capping off all the other things dealt with this year, like getting COVID, being on dialysis, mm. you know, his whole thing with FDU. Um, I was just wondering for you, since it's like so personal, like the relationship between you and him, um, like. Do you feel like any goodwill toward him in any degree at this time in his life? And does it like make you reflect and possibly like regret the conflict you guys have had um, with each other, including like the whole Hampton Fire thing? Um, I think that Elder Holland, uh, you're you're trying to put me on the spot here where he just lost his wife, and you're trying to get me to say something, I guess, catchy, but. I'll just say that I found Elder Holland to be very genuine when he was trying to help me with my faith crisis, but he also didn't have answers. And over time, I learned that I was only helpful to him as long as I continued to say the right things. And I found uh, his integrity deeply lacking. Right. And I, sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, but I'm just like, I you did, though. I mean, you called, very... whatever your reason is, I mean, you called to do that at, during this show, so I'm just trying to figure out what that is. Well, I want to assure San Diego and the rest of the audience <laughs> that there's no truth to the rumor that uh, Bill is planning on doing another episode, this one titled Liar, Liar, Shroud on Fire. No, we won't be doing that. I'll no. stay far That away. would be low. Bill yeah. has standards. They may be low, right. but he has standards. All right, let's go to another caller. We've got, I think, Zelik on the phone, and this will be our last one for the night. I don't know if that was James Raphael or what, but... There's Dan with his comments saying, yes, Maven, next week. So we'll be seeing Dan Vogel next week. And Dan, I hope you weather the storms in Ohio. Hello? Yeah. Give, give us one second. RFM's just talking to Dan Vogel, so one more. That moment. was actually... A, a, it, it wasn't supposed to be a period, but I decided to end the sentence there anyway. Okay, so is it Zelik? Hello? Yeah. Go, go ahead. You're on Mormonism Live. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I just called to say that I wrote, back in the day, I wrote a, a master's degree. I had five kids in tow, and I did it during the summer, but I tapped into a kind of a muse, and mm. I, I wrote that thing in, like, no time flat. And I just looked at the word count, like I wrote it within like a two-month summer summer session. And I'm just looking at the word count now, 777,000 words in a summer. And it was like almost written good enough to publish just from this muse. But I was so busy, I just tapped into something. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And there, I just wrote. I something like that could easily have happened for Smith. You you might want to consider starting a church. I actually told Brian Hales this, and he deleted my comment. And I told him how many words and how many pages yeah, didn't I wrote help. in two months. <laughs> he deleted that's your a comment. Sign of a, that's a sign of a real truth seeker. And I said, yeah. "There's such a thing. There's such a thing as abuse." And 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 I tapped into it, Lottie Daw, and it was like it didn't like he deleted it. Yeah, it's not the first time like, I run into Brian Hill's too much deleting information, stuff. you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so a true that's Mormon. Really what I want to say. Well, thank that's you. That's fascinating, Zelik. Uh, Zelik. And 
I Check. actually did it twice in a row. I did a second book that same way. Look at that. Really? Getting a, a second master's in English. Well, see, this I is quickly a... wrote it like the same thing. That's amazing. And I had a, a new nursing baby by then. Yeah, the, it was, this is a thing that's been around for, so yeah, as you know, thousands of years, thousands of years, at least back to the Greeks, where they believed that they were muses, and I think they were seven in number, and there's, uh, you know, Terpsichore, the muse there's, of dance, and Chloe, and all these things, and poetry, and the idea that yeah. our I, that sometimes when, what Mormons would call the Holy Ghost, or Christianity probably in general, this inspiration that comes from seeming from a source outside, has been identified as different things by different cultures throughout the ages. Even Stephen King wrote a little short story where he's trying to answer the question, where the hell do all my ideas come from? Because at some point when you are a very creative person, you've got the knack, you, it seems like it's coming from outside of you. And we've all had that experience, I think, in the church where an idea comes to us that seems new and fresh. And it's like, I didn't think that up. It came to me from outside of me. So we call it the Holy Ghost or God. They would call it a muse. And sometimes it can light up and you just have that gift flowing through you as if it's not part of you. And I'm not here to say, maybe it isn't part of you. Maybe it is. But it is something that occurs inside and outside of Christianity and has for a long time. And it's really fascinating that you had both of those experiences in your life. Yeah. All right. So I, I hung, actually, I ended that call. So, cause, Oh, I'm sorry. We were done with Zelik. So anyway, the great Zelik. Yeah. The great Zelik, which is a new name as well. So new names get created. That happens, you know? Yeah. Except Zelik, I think is a, it's not a I'm new just, name. I'm just teasing. Okay. It could be it. someone's new name. All names were new at some point. <laughs> At some point, somebody said, whatever the name is, John, any name, it had to be new at some point. So what do you think, Bill? Are we ready to end this show or? Yeah, let's, uh, let's call it a night and uh, we'll pick up next week with Dan Vogel and try to squeeze in the last uh, 39 slides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if nothing else, uh, hopefully Brian Hales will have heard about this by then and he'll come back and he'll be in the live chat. We'd love to have Brian on to ask these kinds of questions. He could defend what's left of his honor. Yeah, well, what's left? Mm -hmm.